Welcome to Dragon Talk. I'm Greg Tito. I'm here with Shelly Mazanova. And we are going to talk to a very uh, wonderful friend of the show, Bob Salvatore. Some Bobby. of you might know him as R.A. Salvatore, but you know, we 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 talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. You'll understand why we he chose Bob. why he chose those initials. What are you in the future right now? I am in the future. <laughs> yeah. How do you know? We just had that interview. <laughs> That's why Shelly Mazanova. Well, I am a time traveler. Don't. That's what happens. It's confusing. I, I don't get time travel. I don't get it either. But what I do get is all of your feedback that you leave on iTunes and on Google Play, because we are on Google Play now. Uh, for And the uh, Twitters. For this fe- yes, exactly. On the Twitters as well. Uh, so, yeah, please do uh, rate and review us. Uh, we are talking about all kinds of stuff Dungeons & Dragons related, uh, including Bob's latest book, uh, Hero, which is coming out October 25th. It can be your hero. I was thinking of all the different songs that have hero in them. Oh my gosh. All day today. We are not going to be doing the karaoke version of Dragon Talk, but we will. We don't will. need another hero. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Tina Turner. Yeah. I always thought of it was, you know, the the, the, the gyro, the but I was Did you ever know? Hero. That, oh. <laughs> mm, now <laughs> I'm mm, hungry. Mm, I'm hungry for Dungeons and Dragons food. Uh, Storm King's Thunder is out now. Go check it out in stores. Coming up soon is Volo's Guide to Monsters. Uh, it is a wonderful uh, guide. Beautiful. Tons of monster lore, uh, layers, maps of layers of common monsters like Mind Flayers and Yuan-Ti, uh, just to name a yes, couple. Yes, I do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did that exact joke with Chris Perkins. No. Yes. Did he laugh? You'll hear it on a, on a lore you should know. Really? Uh, maybe the one that's going to be coming up oh. right about now. Spoiled your joke. Spoiled my joke. <laughs> Welcome to Lore You Should Know. I am joined once again by Mr. Chris Perkins. Hello. How goes it? Everything is hunky-dory, and you know why? Why? Because today we're going to talk about one of my favorite D&D monsters. Oh, nice. Yes. I'm sad Matt won't be able to join us, but uh, at least we'll be able to to monopolize your conversation on on which, on what is your monster? So, uh, we are going to talk about Yuan-Ti. I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but thank you thank you for offering i think i set you up for that um yeah yeah matt can't be here because as of the uh, recording of this he is still gallivanting around the united kingdom uh discovering uh pubs yes of which yes. i hope there is no you there but there oh, is no, lots you're, of tea you're time. almost certainly not going to find any you anywhere in england or scotland that is not their climate but in ireland whew, there was some there. Oh, there could be. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Yuan-Ti are actually native to tropical and arid settings. And uh, but, I, uh, but we get ahead of ourselves. What yes. Are, what are Yuan-Ti? What are Yuan-Ti? Yes, they exactly. are snake people. So different from, from lizard folk, which are, are more, you know, obviously lizardy. These yes. are s- more uh, uh, specifically snakes. Yes. And uh, they have a great deal of diversity in terms of their appearance and abilities. Uh, but what characterizes the Yuan-Ti is their uh, sinister, conniving um, demeanors. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are selfish, grasping, um, manipulative Machiavellian. 
monsters. Now, does that come from the, uh, I guess, you know, the Adam and Eve creation myth of, of the serpent being? Cer- certainly these, yes, absolutely. Um, they, they are meant to embody all the worst mythic aspects of serpentine nature. Uh, there's also something very uh, pulp noir about them. Um, in what in, way? In that uh, you kind of, they're very sort of dark continent. mm like in their feel, uh, they're they're sort of a a hidden evil. Uh, they have at one time, like many powerful evil creatures, they had empires and kingdoms and stuff, but they were destroyed and driven into the dark recesses, uh, which is really where snakes are scariest, right? In those dark crevices until they suddenly lunge out at you. And, right, they're yeah, hiding exactly. behind a, a tree or, or, exactly. or in the tree itself. Yes, so uh, Yuanti are a hidden threat. And uh, they first appeared um, in uh, an old Advanced Dungeons and Dragons adventure, module I-1, Dwellers of the Forbidden City, Ah. which was a classic jungle-based lost city type adventure experience. And Mm -hmm. that was done by David Cook, um, very famous, well-known early D&D adventure designer, later went on to do Planescape. Um, oh, and other things. Uh, also known as Zeb, correct? Also known as Zeb, yes, exactly. Also known as the, the lead designer for second edition. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> but that's where the Uanti first appeared, and they were inhabiting this sort of sunken, for, forgotten city, um, along with several other jungle creatures. Um, and uh, they had, um, uh, there were, they sort of had different hit die ranges and stuff like that. And then they later appeared in the Monster Manual 2 by Gary Gygax, uh, another AD&D product in the early going. Mm-hmm. And uh, we discovered um, then uh, that uh, they come in different types. There are sort of three basic types of Yuanti. One is the pureblood Yuanti, who are humanoid in form although they tend to have subtle snake-like features, like they might have scaly skin or a forked tongue or slit eyes. Um, But uh, unless you're seeing one up close, they could easily pass for human. And those are the ones that you want to use to infiltrate cities and towns, to gather information, to find easy marks, to kidnap as slaves or sacrifices, that kind of thing. Uh, so the purebloods are kind of like the spies and assassins in Yuanti culture. Makes sense. Um, and they are the weakest of the three. And then there are uh, the uh, what we introduced in fourth edition is the uh, we gave them a name Yuanti Malisons, which are they can't hide their snake-like deformities the way that uh, the purebloods can. They basically look like half snake, half human. But within then, there's even a great deal more variety because a Malison might have a human body and a long snake tail or a human body and a snake's head I see. or a human body and arms that are replaced with snake-like um, appendages. appendages. Uh, and then one of the most, I guess, classic or iconic versions of the Uanti Malison is the... Uh, upper body of a human, lower body of a snake. Um, so they have a big, long, thick, lower trunk torso that goes off into snake-like form. And that actually yes, uses it to, to locomote around. Yeah, exactly. They don't have legs. 
Okay, so that's uh, like the mermaid or the droid. Yeah, or that exactly. Idea. Yeah, and so um, when often in art, when we depict Malisons, they have snake heads, snake tails, human upper torso with human-like arms, where they can wield scimitars or a bow or something like that. Uh, for many people, that's the most iconic Yuanti, and there the Malisons are sort of the middle of Yuanti society uh, and. Um, uh, they're often the most diverse in terms of they might study as like rangers or wizards or priests or whatever. Um, the most numerous yeah. group of Yuanti. Um, yes. And then at the top are the most powerful Yuanti, which are the abominations. Uh, and they are simply large in terms, much larger than human, um, human snake hybrids. Uh, and they too have snake bodies. Uh, but they tend to be bigger and much more fearsome, much more strong. Do they um, have the same amount of diversity in no, form? No. Okay. No, they're almost all universally alike, other than maybe cosmetic differences in terms of color, but they're all uh, snake lower torso, humanoid upper torso types. Now, uh, in, later in, in the later editions of the game, other Yuanti variations have cropped up, mm -hmm. uh, but those three basically form the core. Now, where did all that diversity come from? Are they are they uh, distinct species of their own? Or? That's interesting to note. Um, so, uh, Yuanti are um, the the Yuanti used to be human, mm. um, and then they made pacts with evil snake gods, uh, and underwent a ritual which is sort of described as a, a cannibalistic magical ritual involving not only the eating of each other but also bathing in snakes and they were rewarded for their audacious loyalty to these gods by being transformed by these divine powers into these snake hybrids and you say bathed, well, let's just go back to bathed in snakes bathed for a second. Bathed in snakes. I thought you were going yes. to say snakes' blood or snakes. No, actual living, crawling, creepy snakes. They're taking snake baths. And they were just getting bit constantly? Uh, yeah, they were getting bit uh, by the snakes, and that was sort of a mo like an exaltation for them. Ugh. And as the poison coursed through their veins and the ritual spells were cast upon them, they transformed into these uh, snake-like beings. And they did it because they wanted to basically exterminate their rivals, kingdoms that were out to get them, other empires that opposed them, and they thought making these pacts with these snake gods, gaining these serpentine-like traits, would um, not only transform them physically, but also give them the power to annihilate their rivals. Oh, and gross. it didn't work out that way. Uh, uh, <laughs> like so many dark evil yeah, packs exactly, do. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Things kind of fell apart, but they never lost their faith. And in fact, one of the big drivers of Yuan-Ti culture is the idea that uh, they can make more sacrifices, partake in more rituals to become even more closer to their gods or godlike themselves. The ultimate goal of a Yuan-Ti abomination or a Yuan-Ti malison or a Yuan-Ti pureblood is to continue to transform until they can become snake gods themselves. Mm. That's sort of the dream. Um, the three primary deities uh, that we describe in the fifth edition monster manual that Yuanti cling to are Mershalk, which is, he's just a snake god, Seth, which is inspired by Set, mm -hmm. um, the, the Egyptian. Egyptian god, 
and Dendar the Night Serpent, who is this sort of end of days, end of world entity um, who the Yuan-Ti are constantly appeasing in the hopes that it will come into the world, devour the world, and take the Yuan-Ti off to some other plane of existence where they can rule happily and mightily. That's the um, hope, is that, yes. that but kill everything. Not the only, they are not the only serpent gods. There are others that we don't describe, uh, but we just put it out there. Hey, DM, insert serpent god here. Right. You want to your great because they're just evil. Um, they're dropped into any sort of fringe. Uh, they, they live in the fringes of humanoid society in the wild, um, but they have dark temples and ancient lost cities, and uh, they feel very old world and archaic. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, it definitely seems to bring back that, like, kind of, you know, Indiana Jones, exactly. archaeological... But you might be creeping through the streets of Waterdeep and get jumped by some Yuanti purebloods hiding in an alley because mm. they want to, you know, drag you off to some warehouse where they can ship you out on a boat to the Yuanti homeland, either to serve as a sacrifice or to become a slave. Yuanti love slaves as well. <laughs> They're just really into slaves. They're yes, like exactly. Dip- They're <laughs> not into staircases, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's very difficult for them. Yeah. If you want to insult a Yuan-Ti, you'd be like, hey, come on up. Yes. Uh, we'll be up here. Yuan-Ti get a lot of attention in Volo's Guide to Monsters. Uh, not only uh, do they, they, we describe them at length, and we talk about other variations of them as well, but we also talk about Yuan-Ti lairs, and we, have, uh, we, we map out uh, one of their, their temple lairs. And Yeah, you don't find many staircases. Ramps. Ramps. Only Snakes ramps. like ramps. Yeah. <laughs> Oddly enough, they're the first, you know, uh, uh, race in the Dungeons and Dragons worlds to uh, make sure that ramps were in every single one of mm-hmm. their buildings. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Handicapped uh, 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 ramps for all. Yeah. Um, so, but, so does every single member of the Yuan-Ti that you would meet has undergone this ritual? So, uh, no, you can also have, uh, Yuan-Ti can breed. Okay, um, and then they create yeah, offspring. Like, like very much like snakes do, they give birth to live young. Okay. Um, it's the, the rituals now are used to uh, turn slaves into Niyuanti. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of a, a degenerate form of Yuanti that came up um, uh, back in, early, in the earliest editions called a brood guard. They're, they've sort of undergone a cheap ritual, mm. sort of a, the, the, the Walmart version of the ritual. They're just like is, a little snaky. Uh, yeah, they've got, they've got, no, they're, they're definitely snake-like. Um, you, they couldn't pass for human, but they're sort of um, hunched, not altogether bright mm. um, creations. They're, they're, they're sort of magically bred to be subservient and to have no real ambitions or goals, um, but they look more appealing to Yuan-Ti because of their serpentine features. I see. So, so it's, it's better more like than a, having a random slave. Yeah, it's like yeah, you don't want a human slave because they're so kind of pink and ugly or whatever. You can transform it into something that's more wretched to humans but more appealing to Yuan-Ti, and that's what a brute guard is. Makes and sense. And they're also just blindly loyal. So when you undergo, like, for example, you mentioned slaves would be forced to undergo this. Do they lose their sense of individuality? Yeah, the brood guards just become essentially dumb, sycophantic, I'll do whatever you say, mooks. Okay. Um, so it's another way to kind of ensure loyalty. Yes, yes, right. And that's a, because uh, Yuan-Ti are so conniving and suspicious, and uh, they're always suspecting slave revolts. Mm. Um, they've had them, they've suffered them in the past, they remember the ancient past when their slaves rose up against them and things like that. Is that so, how their, their, their empires were, were uh, It was, it was a con- contributing factor. I'd say the greatest factor to the Yuan-Ti's fall was their own audacity, um, their, their own... Um, 
duplicity mm-hmm. and their suspicious nature uh, and the fact that they just refuse to get along with anybody. Yeah. Is there, so is there a, uh, a society, like is there one leader at the top mm. or are there differing factions that fight against each other? It varies um, because they are egotistical, ambitious, and so conniving leadership within a Yuan-Ti settlement or temple or city or wherever dungeon complex can change. Mm. Um, it's, uh, you might have a particularly powerful Malison priest who is so um, devoted to one of the serpent gods and has so much charisma that he or she is able to kind of keep the abominations in line and use them as sort of like massive enforcer types. But most commonly what you'll find is the, the presiding ruling Yuanti is the, the biggest and smartest abomination. Uh, the one who is closest to achieving what the others believe to be a step of godhood. Mm. And there are, um, in later editions, um, in fourth edition, came uh, the Yuanti anathemas, which are huge, monstrous, even bigger than the abomination Yuanti. It seems to be a trend among D&D designers. Bigger. Always go bigger. Yeah, bigger uh, is more yes, terrible. Exactly. So you might find one of those. And those almost look like they're as big as demon lords, practically. And those look like fearsome end-of-dungeon super threats. Um, I see. And you might find an anathema leading a, a Yuanti city, for instance. So if a um, uh, an abomination mates with another abomination, do they create an abomination? Or is, could it be any in the strata? They'll create an abomination. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but then it begs the question, why would they? Um, why, why create something that could be a potential that could rival? Be a potential rival. So that's the other thing plaguing Yuanti society is uh, their natural suspicions uh, prohibit them from really uh, creating <laughs> anything that they perceive as a threat. Hmm. And then do the purebloods who are, who are kind of at the bottom of this, this you know, mini caste system, are they trying to appease their masters so that they can undergo another ritual and then possibly become Malisons? Yes, or, or they've they've sort of uh, they're content or resigned to their caste, and are just basically looking to profit. Um, since you want to tend toward neutral evil, which is sort of a self-serving evil, mm-hmm. um, they have all the complex motivations of unscrupulous humans. And so they blend in very well in the yes. underworlds of, exactly. of yes. uh, Waterdeep or, or Baldur's Gate. Exactly, or like that. yes. And so, um, uh, and, and the fact that they can just show up anywhere is kind of creepy. It is. Uh, so are, are there a significant number of Iwanti in the Forgotten Realms? Um, that is a very good question. Um, so the Forgotten Realms origin story of Yuan-Ti is slightly different from the core, which oh, is okay. unusual. Okay. Uh, we rarely have divergences like this. Um, but uh, it had been established pretty early on that Yuan-Ti in Forgotten Realms uh, were created by, um, I, gosh, I don't remember uh, the actual name, but there were these ancient... Um, creator gods mm-hmm. or, or creator races, I guess, actually, that populated the early Forgotten Realms and they all got wiped out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they left behind um, lesser races that they created. And uh, the Yuan-Ti were one of those. And 
so they have sort of this creator race mythology mm-hmm. um, that they are essentially the descendants of a master race. Oh, so out of the, the when the Forgotten Realms was new, yes. they were one of the first that were exactly. created by yes. the gods. Or and whatever. so that makes them one of the sort of oldest progenitor races in the Forgotten Realms. I see. Um, but apart from that, everything else is very similar. They have fallen empires uh, where they live on. Um, they have one of the key empires of the Forgotten Realms is Najara. Another is Samarak. Uh, and uh, it's unknown exactly how many there are, but there, we're talking tens, if not hundreds of thousands of them. Oh, wow. So terrifying number of yeah. in actuality. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, there's, there's a nest of snakes out nest there. Nest of somewhere. snakes. Yes. That's exactly how to put it. <laughs> Gross. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, I'm going to go take a snake bath. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am not. But thank you. I, I apologize to our listeners who may have uh, uh, any uh, uh, phobias, phobias associated with snakes. Phytophobias. Yes. Is that what it is? Phytophobias. Yeah. Uh, but uh, thank you. And uh, now I'm terrified. Thanks, Chris. My job is done. <laughs> That was cool. I like Chris Perkins. I'm glad he was able to uh, drop some lore uh, <laughs> about the Yuan T. Uh, endless. And uh, he laughed at my joke. You know, maybe just politely. He's a very nice man. <laughs> Speaking of polite, let's get to uh, another nice man, Mr. Bob Salvatore. Let's do it. We'll call him up on the horn right Bad about now. All right. Hello? Hello. Hello. Bobby. Oh, Bob, it's so great to see you. <laughs> you can't you can see, see me. I shut off my camera. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so great to hear from you. It's great to hear your voice, Bob. It's good to be here, kind of. <laughs> going back to the well, planetary I'm discussion. Well, I'm kind of here because I'm not there. It's true. The, but you're the, somewhere. The, you're there. Yeah. Just yes. not here. You're here in our home. Yes. We're not here. And we're here there. to talk about Hero. Oh, good one. The, the, uh, the final book in this uh, uh, Homecoming trilogy uh, from uh, The Legend of Drist by R.A. Salvatore, <laughs> which we call you as Bob. And we're not worried. Every time I say, oh, Bob Salvatore, people are like, who are you talking about? I'm like, R.A.? Oh, they're like, oh, okay. I understand now. Oh, yeah, yeah. My Do you get Bob. that a lot? Um, the only person who ever called me R.A. was Kurt Schilling, and he, would, he just insisted on doing it, and it was really, like, annoying after a while. <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh, we'll table that uh, till after podcast hey. discussions as to other things that might be annoying about uh, that particular person. Why did you <laughs> Why did you go with RA? I never knew the history of that. Because no, it, it was actually I didn't even think about it uh, until they asked me. So how do you want your name to appear on the book? And then it was like, well, they've got at the time, you know, they've got Doug and they've got Jeff and they've got Troy and they've got Margaret and they've got Tracy. And that, of course, I was a huge Tolkien fan. He's the one that turned me on to it. I said, well, Jesus, maybe if I use my initials, someone will remember oh, who I am. Yeah. So it was kind of like a, a marketing bit of insight there that I'd use RA. Mm-hmm. And of course, I soon got told you shouldn't have done that back then because <laughs> most people are going to assume it's a woman because back then women fantasy writers were having a lot of problems with a lot of the fans who Mm. think women belonged in fantasy unless they were damsels in distress or chicks in chainmail. It was incredibly sexist genre back in the eighties. It just was. Yeah. 
And so they were saying, you know, it's not a positive. So a lot of women were using their initials. Apparently, this is what I was told. I don't. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not. An yeah, expert. I'm trying to think. Of, yeah. I mean, J.K. Rowling, but she came out much. S.E. Hinton, oh, okay. Hinton, but uh, she wasn't fantasy. Yeah, I mean, but um, I remember being surprised. So that she's a woman. They, yeah, they said, you know, it's it's not a positive in this genre hmm. at that time. Now I think it's it's probably seen as a positive for people who are who are reading lots and lots of fantasy because there's a different. I, I think there really is a difference in in the perspectives and and I don't want to say tone, but um, the pacing of books, I think, and and so it's the welcome. I you know a, a lot of the women writing. First of all, they're fabulous. The ones writing in fantasy now, most of them, and it's a nice change of pace. Absolutely. So, so you've been uh, you've been traveling around uh, uh, the Northeast for the most part, uh, going down to Florida and other places at conventions. What's it been like uh, talking to people about uh, the last few books, Maestro and uh, Archmage? Oh, it's been great. I mean, the people. Most of the people haven't caught up, which is great, and they are catching up now, and that's that's really great when you're at conventions and you see people kind of dropped out along the way one place or another because, you know, they went into the military, got out of the military, got married, had kids, whatever, and they're all catching up. But for the people who had read and were caught up, they're, like, really excited for Hero. And uh, I, I am too because I just felt so good writing this series that it, it, everything seemed to be falling in place exactly where I wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen all the time. Um, but when it does happen, you can feel it when you're writing the books. And, you know, one guy said to me, you know, I, I read Maestro and, and I'm like, I just can't wait to see. It. I want to know what's going now. What's going to happen next? And I said, uh, the end of Hero will blow your mind. And uh-huh. I am so confident of that, that I gave him my email address. I said, if you read Hero and it doesn't blow your mind, write to me and I'll reimburse you. Wow. Whoa. You're putting your money where uh- your mouth is. Yeah, that offer is only to him. I just want to make oh. this very clear. <laughs> it's not to everybody listening to the podcast. Um, but, you know, I, I'm just really confident in the book because it felt so good writing it. And um, when that happens, you know. I mean, I knew when I wrote The Companions, I was going to be really happy with the book. I knew when I wrote Hope, Homeland that I was really happy with the book. I knew when I wrote Mortalis that it was one of the best things, if not the best thing I've ever done. When I wrote The Highwayman, you know, some there, as much as you love all of your books, there every now and then you write one and you just feel like, yeah, nailed I got it. it. So did you know that when did you know what Hero was going to be about, what it was going to, what the story was going to be? While because do you outline your books first? I have to. You guys will yeah. send me a check. Oh well, <laughs> it's our fault. <laughs> I, I, I know the broad strokes of the book going in. I think I know them. Sometimes they change. This one changed a little bit, actually quite a bit. Um, I know the broad strokes, but I'm always surprised. I'm always surprised um, at with all the particulars that go on because there's so many side characters and side stories going on. People can drop off. People can join in. Um, oh, that's not good. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, I don't. I don't. Um, I do get surprised. I get surprised all the time, and that's why I enjoy doing this so much because it's like I'm reading the book while I'm writing the book. Mm-hmm. If I knew everything was going to happen, I'd be bored. True. And so even though I know the broad strokes, like at the end of the book, this monster will die, or I think so. I mean, I thought at the end of Streams of Silver that Adamus and Trey was going to die. But then he got so darn interesting to me during the writing of the book that I said, I can't kill him yet. I got to oh. find out more about this guy. He saved his life. Yeah, that's the way it I works. I got more to tell. 
It's like Tracy Hickman's Killer Breakfast. Keep me amused, I'll keep you alive. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Now, do you write the books from beginning to end, or do you jump in the middle, or how, did, how does that work for you? I write the books from beginning to end with very, very rare exception. Uh, I'm working on the Demon Wars book right now, and there were a couple of scenes that came to mind for the character that I had, and one was a sex scene. And <gasps> Bob. I don't, yeah, but it works. It worked. It worked. I don't do a lot of those in the writing, so I was really kind of like, mm, can I pull this off? And so I wrote that because I just wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I did. You were in the and mood. It's not you were in the, in the mood to write that. But it's not. It's not actually not even in the book. It's in the second book in the series. <laughs> I restructured it when I was writing it. Um, but so every now and then, there's a scene that I'll put in. I think the only time I've ever done that in any of the realms books was when I wrote the battle scene with. Um, I, well, I did it with the first Dritz book. I wrote the sample chapter was Big Grin's Lair. Mm. Um, when they went in the Crystal Shard, when they go to fight the the um, the Verbeeg uh, giants, and I did it, I think, in one of the cleric books. And there was a fight scene that I really wanted to write with Ivan and Pickle, at, at an inn. And I just wanted to write the fight scene. I was feeling very three Stoogerous, Irish, and I so I wrote the fight scene just because I wanted to write it. And then I went back and wrote the book and put it in where it belonged. Um, but generally, I, I'm very linear. I do one project at a time. I, I do beginning, middle, and end. That's interesting. Do you do you feel – I mean because you've talked before with us about like how the characters will surprise you and, 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 and stream through you. Do you think that's uh, more – happens more often to fantasy writers than to uh, writers of other genres because of the embodiment of, of that kind of adventure trope? I don't know. No, I think it happens to all writers. Yeah. I think writers, the characters become real to them and start talking to them. And mm-hmm. it's, it's very strange, but it happens. And I, I've, every writer I know that I've that I've spoken to about this has said, oh, yeah. Um, I think that's just the way it works. That you've cre- when you're writing, it's it's the only way I can describe it, it's like being an actor. I think when you're you know, and you, you fall into the character mm-hmm. um, only as a writer, you're into all the characters. You have to kind of be the actor for each one of them. And every now and then their voice – and not every now and then, but at some point their voice just becomes second nature to you. So even going from book to book, you know who they are. You know what they sound like. You know how to write them. And for me, what's really fun about that is when one of my characters is acting out of character in the book, instead of saying he doesn't act that way and changing it, I ask myself, why is she doing that? Mm. what's wrong with her what's going on and then usually an interesting sub story or subplot will develop from that oh interesting yeah it's bizarre yeah i was wondering if there was if that's why writers make good uh you know role-playing game players too is because they let that you know if they have a connection with the character that they've made on the character sheet that they kind of let them embody you know them as you're Mm. as you're acting around the table who says we do I don't, I don't think I, I mean, for me, it's, it's more a matter of, I think that fans are very generous when they see like their favorite writers and artists playing games and yeah. So, so you think that when you, you play know, games, you don't, you don't do I think part I'm, of what I you're think, doing when you're writing books. I think if nobody knew I was Bob Salvatore and I went into a tournament, a role-playing tournament, I wouldn't win. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth. I mean, it's, I'm just being honest here. I think I, I'm a pretty, I'm a good player when I'm playing and I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm a clever player, certainly. 
Uh, I was a math major, so you learn how to min-max and stuff like that. Um, but I, I don't think – I think that – you know, it's, it's a funny thing when you're, when you're a celebrity – yeah. In, in your field, whatever, you get up on the stage and you say something that's mildly funny and everybody cracks up laughing. <laughs> and you feed into that. It, <laughs> oh, it like, feeds, that's crazy. It feeds <laughs> back and forth. It's the generosity of the audience. I mean, the same jokes that get people rolling at Gen Con get my family throwing things at me at home. Yeah, that's true. It's what, a lower you, bar when you're among your fans. Yeah, all, my wife <laughs> thinks my dad <laughs> jokes are horrible. And I'm always like, this would have killed if I had a microphone and I was in front of 400 people. 400 it's toddlers. True. Yeah, 400 <laughs> toddlers would have thought it was hilarious. <laughs> Exactly. My yeah. kid still uh. thinks you're funny because you said banana to him. I know. And I don't even remember doing it, but I said banana. And he Every th- time we see bananas, he's like, Mr. Greg, he <laughs> loves bananas. <laughs> oh, <geez>. oh. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Robot. So I think a lot of that is, is that um, people like that they're playing a game with Bob Salvatore, Greenwood or whoever, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and then you have the ones who just generally are like amazing, like Chris Perkins, right? And I'm not saying Ed's not, because Ed's an amazing DM. Right. Uh, even though he tricked me to jumping on a gas board that I thought was a beholder and blew up Dritz and killed him in the charity game, <gasps> which I thought was really creepy. Um, but <laughs> I'll forgive him. I have forgiven him. Ed, I forgive you. I love you, man. Um, <laughs> and even though Patrick Rothfuss stole Guinevere at Acquisitions and, and then traded her. Whoa. Um, not cool. Yeah, cu- next time I see him, I'm cutting his beard when he's not looking. You should. And trade it. Yeah. And trade it. Yeah, I'm going to give it to Dritz. Yeah. <laughs> he's going to walk around, around with his beard and they're going to call the it the Rothfuss. Yeah. The Rothfuss. Not Do the it. Fu Manchu, but the Rothfuss. Yep. I love that. Yep. Bringing it to the Underdark. Well, what about, I know you, you used to play uh, uh, old school uh, D&D a lot more than, uh, uh, you know, some of the current generation of, of, of rules. When you played around the table, did you ever f- have that experience of, of, of embodiment rather than, you know, doing the, the min-max combat heavy play? Did you ever have? Uh, a, oh, know? yeah. 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 When I'm, with, I'm a different person when I'm with my friends. And yeah. my gaming, we're all like best friends and family. And um, I'll cut loose. I cut loose last night. We had a... Uh, we had a, we were first level characters and there was a giant that was walking by and we were supposed to stay away and I said no nah, let's, let's <laughs> no we'll kill him so we e walked him with a couple of logs nice and uh, we actually won the fight I died well, I didn't die oh. but I was knocked down and I was lying there kind of flopping like a seal to clap for them and oh. um, yeah it went really great I and and I mean one time I played a character that went in a book the only time I've done that is Oliver DeBarrows mm-hmm. my highwayman from the Crimson Shadow books and he's kind of a cross between um, an Ego Montoya and the little French guy on the wall of Monty Python's Holy Grail <laughs> and actually Oliver is kind of the archetype that I patterned Regis on in the Companions when Regis kind of had a remake Yeah, and he, I kind of made him more Oliver-ish but I played Oliver in the game because I wanted to see if he would be annoying enough to just make everybody want him dead. And, and sure enough, um, we were playing for about six weeks, and it was, a, it was a super role-playing DM. Like the guy that spends 25 minutes describing the dinner you're about to eat. Right. And so, you know, your character may not kill a monster that night, but you might kill a DM. <laughs> um, we were playing for like six weeks. We were still first level, and I was a little thief and playing – playing Oliver as the coward that he is who tries to pretends he's brave and we came up on these ruins and there were these pillars and the, the wizard used his scroll of clairvoyance and he looked to see if anything was up there but he looked behind the pillars but behind them back he didn't look between them or against them and so when as soon as he said the coast was clear Oliver went I'll lead 
of course, because oh, that's easy, right? And he goes <laughs> dancing up the steps and out jumped this ogre. And in our game, we play a natural 20 as a crit, and you then you roll percentage dice. And 1 to 85 is double damage, 86 to 99 is triple damage, 100 is into the gill. Mm-hmm. So this ogre jumped out and criticaled my poor little first-level thief who had six hit points. And the ogre did a d10 plus six. So I'm already at zero to negative 10, but he criticaled and rolled like a 96 and did like 40 hit points and just Ouch. splattered me all over the stairs. And everybody got up and cheered. That's, <laughs> oh. when I, that's when I knew Oliver had to be in the book. And he's one of my favorite funny characters. Because everybody hated him that much. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. That's the only time any character has ever ended up in the books? You don't use maybe your games to kind of test out some new personas? No, no I don't. I really don't. Well, one t- I did one other time. Now that you mentioned that when I was doing the Demon Wars Kickstarter, I had to write a novella before we reached the stretch goal. Mm-hmm. And I used, I used Brother Thaddeus as the monk I was playing in Demon Wars because a couple of really interesting things. In that game, you can kind of take on different roles by just changing you know or adding new techniques and he was a spellcaster who's incredibly weak and he thought the fighters were like you know the dumb meat slabs that were just supposed to go up there and get beat up until he could do the real kill mm-hmm. of the monsters and he accidentally lightning bolted the striker monk the dps monk and killed him and he felt so bad about it that he realized that he had to take that guy's place in the line so instead of using his magic to throw lightning bolts, he used his magic to make himself stronger, to make himself tougher. And he went in there and tried to fight like the striker monk. I thought it was a cool story. So I used that as the novella. That's it, cool. When I was writing. But that's the only other time. Oliver and Brother Thaddeus. Other than that, no, they're not characters in the in the game at all. Any situations? Any like good fights yes. that happened in the role-playing game? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, we had a friend, I had a friend from um, who was playing who is a dwarf. In his mind, he's 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 got like he's like five six five seven, and he's got calves that look like they belong on Andre the Giant. Just these giant legs, he's just this block of human being, and he he acts like a dwarf in a fantasy dwarf. You know, he just he's just rowdy and and he used to play a dwarven cleric and put protection from fire on him and strap a keg of oil to his back and charge into battle <laughs> and light it when he got into battle. That was like his big tactic. And at the end of Streams of Silver, when Bruno jumped on the dragon, he had a keg of oil on his back. So that came from Brian. And, and then my friend Mike had a character named Jarl Axel. It wasn't the Jarl oh. Axel that's in the books, but I used it, I stole his name because I liked it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, every now and then a situation will come up that I think works. Um, but generally speaking, my gaming is – I don't want to even be thinking about work. Yeah. And – when I'm writing, the characters become so real to me that I don't need the gaming experiences to bring over. So it'll be a, it'll be a, either a little anecdote or a line that came up in the game that was funny or something like that, but not the characters and not, you know, that's just not the way I operate, not just not the way I do it. That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, mm-hmm. you use all of your your breadth of experience to uh, to to create these characters. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't. I I, I would be surprised if you said it was a one to one. Like all of the things that have happened have happened <laughs> at the table, and I'm just you know the muse Before you transporting write a fight them. Fight scene. You choreograph it in your game. Yeah, right. Get all every. I'll get your friend together. You and be stand like, over there. <laughs> you pick Actually, up that there, there there are two things. When I was writing, 
I think it was Neverwinter. It was one of the books of the Neverwinter series. I think it was Neverwinter, that, that book. Mm-hmm. I had a fight with, uh, with Barabbas, or Adamus and Trary, and um, Ephron, the necromancer. And I used the cards because fourth edition had come out, and I wrote an anatomically correct fourth edition battle scene when they were in the woods fighting the zealots, and it nearly killed me. <laughs> it was like – it, it was really hard to translate like that. And then the other thing um, – oh, there was one other. I, um, in my game, I only, after years of writing, I said to the group, look, everyone keeps asking me if you played Drift, so I'm going to play Drift. And so I started the character, Dark Elf character, and he had a really high dex and everything. So I started him with a bow just to keep him alive till he got some cool abilities as a ranger. Mm-hmm. And uh, I played Drift. And we went into a room, the first room, and there were a bunch of goblins in there. So I'm in the back, and everybody's down there fighting the goblins. And one goblin is, is – I see one goblin who's I get a clear shot at, and I hit him, and I criticaled him. And I did like 11 points of damage, and he didn't die. I'm like, what well, tough, tough goblin. So I shot him again. He started running out the back door. So I chased him. because uh, I mean, he had to be almost dead. I hit him twice. I did like total of like 15 points of damage. So first level goblin. Mm-hmm. And I ran out in the hall, and it was an ogre magi who was um, polymorphed into a goblin. And I ran into the hall, and he turned around, turned back into the ogre magi, and hit me with a cone of cold and killed me. Oh, and, and the DM and everybody else around the table said, now play a real character. Aww. Oh. So, Drits didn't go over well with my group. They killed him. They killed him. That sounds like it was custom-made encountered to kill him, too. That's, yeah, I would be of almost... Of course it was. It's almost making me uncomfortable for some reason thinking about you playing Drits. I don't... Or like, is it... Like, what's it like? Like, do you play him the way you write him? Or are you just like, I'm just going to have fun with Drits? And like, he's super chatty and talkative. <laughs> if I, if, if <laughs> he's I your best friend. The, if I played him the, well, the way I wrote him in my experience would be playing, playing him, him, I would have written the shortest short story... <laughs> TSR ever published <laughs> because he didn't live past the first room. That's true. <laughs> but what, what were your intention? Kid. Like, would you play him the way that he, you write him, or do you? Or I mean, I would almost feel like I've played characters before that I'm just super protective of, and I don't let them have any fun. And I'm a helicopter mom, and I'm just like, no, no, you can't go out there. There's goblins out there. Are you protective of him? Like, how would you feel about him in battle with your friends? Uh, no, I don't think I, you don't I don't care. know that. <laughs> I don't care. Oh, well, I did use Dritz in the game once when I was DMing. Oh, well, that of. makes more sense. No, this is kind of. The group was all battered, and they went into this barn, and they heard someone up in the loft, and they crept up, and the thief crept up, and he peeked in there, and he saw a dark elf with two scimitars, and Ooh. and and we got this dark elf up there. We got to kill him. So they're gonna go up to kill him, and they go up there, and he turns around, and they they I, get, I describe him, and they go. And I said, you know, you see his purple eyes. And my brother, this was many years ago, my brother says, wait, wait, don't, don't attack, don't attack. He stops me and he goes, he thinks he's onto something here, right? And he says, are you Dritz the Warden? And the dark elf stops and lowers his tim and says, yes, why? <laughs> oh, oh, guys, he's a good guy. And they all put their weapons away and the dark elf killed the entire group oh. and, and looked at my brother as he was lying on the ground and said, what's a drizzit? And left. (laughs) (laughs) So you got the, was this the same group that had killed him with the ogre mad guy or was it a different group? Of course. Oh, nice. All right. So you got your revenge. You got your revenge. The first one that fell was the paladin. Nice. Who had done that. And then he ran another paladin. And later in the campaign, they were jousting. And 
I had a deck of cards for the opponents, and so it was, you know, the and you would you would go through the joust to see how high you could get and score points, and it would count as experience. It was a jousting campaign that I had created, and so you like you might fight the prince, and then you're in trouble because he's wearing full plate, his his horse is full barthing, it's a trained war horse, he's got the best everything, you know. Yeah. You're you're in trouble. And so the paladin pulled the card, and everyone's laughing because it was the easiest fight. But again, remember our game? We play 20-year-old double damage, triple damage, instant kill. Mm-hmm. And so the paladin, who had just gotten his war horse, was all excited. And he's going to his first his first joust is, is a walk, right? He's playing a little league team, basically. And he goes running out. And I, it was all rolled in the open. And I rolled a 20-100 and killed him. And he was fighting <laughs> a peasant on a pig with a broomstick. <laughs> killed the armored paladin. Don't kill so the he pig. No, the, the peasant killed him. Oh, okay. It killed the paladin. First pass, killed him. <laughs> he, he had spent weeks preparing for the joust, getting his war horse, buying his barthing, earning money to get the barthing. And, and he was in the first joust, first path, pass, he was killed by a peasant on a pig with a broomstick. That's amazing. And he quit. <laughs> oh. Um, yeah. And he's never come back again. <laughs> he came back. Okay. And then I did other horrible things to him. <laughs> All right. Well, earlier on, you mentioned uh, uh, you know people not being caught up with uh, the story of Drist right now. So uh, there's probably got to be some readers out there who, uh, who who need that catching up too. So what? Uh, yeah, can you give a little bit about what's happened in uh, in uh, you know Archmage and Maestro leading up to to the release of Hero, which is on October 25th, if I'm not mistaken. You're not mistaken. Um, well, we've got in the in the series before it. I'll back up a little bit. Sure. Um, we have the the battle over Gontelgrim, and we we're revealing ties of this ancient dwarven homeland. Ties are developing between that and Menzoberranzan for reasons that are explained in the book. Um, we've had a war incited by the Dark Elves and the Silver Marches, and so we have our friends. And there's some things going on in the Underdark, and they're trying to reclaim the throne and and win out in Gontelgrim. But meanwhile, there's other things going down. I always sign uh, Archmage. Well, not always, but a lot of times I'll sign it with Gromph, what have you done? <laughs> because at the end of Archmage, Gromph, who has been tricked, um, does something really, 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 really bad for the Underdark in general and for Menzo Baranzan in particular. And then after the fact, of course, they they got to try and fix this. And that includes heroes and one of them being Dritz. And so... That's Maestro. Mm-hmm. Um, they go down to try to fix things. And when they come back, there's a problem internally um, with Dritz that needs clarification and repair. And nobody quite knows how to do it. And that's Hero. I mean, and by internally, you mean within Dritz's psyche? Yes. Interesting. Yes. And, and that's Hero. And... Um, it all came together. Most of the major characters play a role at one point or another in the books. Um, so I was able to get all the companions involved mm-hmm. um, and some of the old foes involved and some of the other companions that were there before the new companions involved. So it, it was it really played together well in getting and I got to do a lot of spotlighting on Jarlaxle and Entreri and I adore those characters together. So it really came together in, in, in a great way. I mean um, 
it brought up all the turmoil of the Neverwinter books and Dahlia and Dritz and Entreri. And um, every, like I said, it really satisfied because everything came together in ways I didn't even expect. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't realize that all of these things were going to just kind of come winding together into this big conclusion. And they did. And it, it felt very, very satisfying to me. What is it? You mentioned how you know the characters that you that you really love to uh, explore, Jarl Axel and Artemis. Uh, what is it about them that uh, you love to explore? Well, with those two, it's really they're just the banter between them more than mm. anything. Else. I mean, they're just a fun. They're fun. Like I like writing buddy fantasy. That's what I call it. <laughs> That's what it's called. It's buddy fantasy. And yeah. and really, if I have to look back, you know, I always give all credit to Tolkien for for um, you know igniting my love. Of reading, reigniting my love of reading and, and of fantasy in particular. But if I have to actually sit down and think about it, the guy who has influenced me the most, the writer who has influenced what I like to do the most, is probably Fritz Leiber, who wrote the Fafford and Grey Mouser, mm. the Lankmar books. And I like buddy fantasy. You know, the the sample chapter that I sent in to TSR those 29 years ago was. Um, Big Grin's cave, where you have Wolfgar, and at that time it was Dareth, but then it became Dritz going into a cave and buddy fantasy fighting mm. a pair of giants. Um, so Jalaxel and Truria really get to explore that, and they're both very, you know, Jalaxel is very witty and very clever, and then Truria is kind of this dry humor, and it just plays, it's almost like Oscar and Felix, right? It just plays <laughs> off each other beautifully, and, um, you know, Jarlaxle, it's funny because, you know, in Trary, he's supposed to be this big evil bad guy, but he's shocked because Jarlaxle is the guy that has no boundaries at all. And it, it just works really well. They work really well together. Some of the most fun I've had in the realms are writing things like uh, the short stories that I wrote with Jarlaxle and Trary or the Sellswords trilogy. Um, you know, when they find the Dragon Sisters, it just, it, everything just played together between the four of them in ways that I just thought were funny and, you know, a little raunchy, but mostly funny. And um, <laughs> it just wrong so many times, just wrong. But it worked. So I love writing them. It's, it's easy writing for me. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, when Jalaxel started, Jalaxel was just my – it was – Jalaxel was like a, a, an inside joke where he was my walking deus ex machina. Mm. So no matter what bad was happening, if Jarlaxle was there, he used his bat utility belt and pulled out something that could counter it. You know? Um, oh, there's a dragon. Well, I just happen to have this arrow that kills dragons. You know, that type of thing. That, that's who Jarlaxle was. And the character just became so much more as we went along. And we, I didn't realize when I first started writing him that he was a Bayanre. And he had been sacrificed to loathe. I didn't realize that he had been a friend of Zachnafane's, Dritt's father. This all happened as I was writing. That's what happens to me all the time with characters. I create a character and I know generally who it is and like the archetype. But then when I'm writing the character, it's almost like you've, I've met a person and I'm learning about them. Yeah. And they start telling, and they surprise me all the time. I just didn't know these things about them. Right, because you didn't, I mean, if I remember from, from, from the homeland where Jalaxel is first there, uh, yeah, the, none of those details are mentioned. It comes out slowly over time that is history, uh, all those things. Yeah, and, and I mean, it, it was really funny because when I got to write Servant of the Shot, I've told this story a million times, but probably never to you guys, so I'll tell you. All right, always good. When I was writing Servant of the Shot, I was really excited because of the protagonists in the group, 
Jarl Axelon and Trary were major players. And I was finally going to get to feature Jarl Axelon in the book. But, I, you know, these contracts are pretty tight. You know, you've got six months to write a book, basically. And I realized that Jarl Axelon had shown up. You know, Servant of the Shard was probably book 11 by that point. And mm-hmm. I wasn't sure which ones had Jarl Axelon shown up in and where, where was he? Because it was just cameos before that. And so I was like, and every time he showed up, he showed off a new magic item or a new property of one of his other magic items. Deus Ex Machina, right? He's always got the solution. Yeah. And so I was sitting there. I was terrified because I was like, I have no idea what this guy has for equipment. And it's going to take me a month of reading and note taking to even begin to figure out to make it consistent with the books. So I went on a message board anonymously <laughs> and I started a thread and said, let's Hey guys, let's do an inventory of Jarl Axel's cool items. Oh, and a way. couple of days later, a couple of days later, I downloaded a ten-page thread, and people were doing like they were they were actually annotating it, and, and they had like bibliography is on this page, you know, and here's what it is, and here's what I think it can do, but here's what it says explicitly it can do. And so I just used those as a guide and went back to the books on the pages they were directing me to, and I had you know, <laughs> oh my god, that's awesome, a month and a half, a month and a half of work done in like an hour. It was pretty cool. You just uh, explained crowdsourcing and Web 2.0. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. And how awesome it can be, for yeah. sure. There's a lot of great fans out there. And especially yeah, ones and that... you don't have to share royalties or anything. It's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody's on message boards asking you, how should this book end? <laughs> don't answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My you name is Blob Blobator. <laughs> don't <laughs> <laughs> don't listen to him uh that's awesome so uh so yeah you said that uh, you know hero ends up being this uh story with a lot of you know uh touch points to the entire legendarist and and uh that it ends up being this this uh this conclusion to the series like wh- how, how did it feel getting getting to the end and, and bringing up all these this this old history was it a lot of that same feel where like you had to go back and, and reread some of your older stuff or at least do some research to, to you know, get back in the headspace of some of those characters? No, no, because I never have to do that for the headspace of the characters. Mm-hmm. It's only the physical, you know, icing around the cake of the character, basically. Mm-hmm. So, like, I have to know what they're carrying for weapons or what color their eyes are or things like that. But when I'm in the head of the character, I'm there, period. I know. So I know the role that, and Trary had to play. I know the role Gromf had to play. I know the role Jarl Axel had to play. Each of them finding their resolution to this, these big problems that were going on. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, there's redemption in this book, and there's, there's resolution for a lot more than Dreads, for all the characters. Oh, cool. um, yeah, and it, coming coming to terms with a lot of things and, and coming to the, you know, the end of their adventuring road or whatever. It's all in there. So it felt, with all of that, it just felt satisfying. And no, I mean, I could have written this book without even cracking another one of my books or a message board to get any reference at all. I was right there. That's good. Did it feel like the, uh, you know, the end of Seinfeld or the end of, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a, a long running television series and that you had, you know, these, these callbacks to older characters and that kind of thing? No, because they were all there anyway. I mean, they've mm. been, I've been building it up for several books that all of these characters were going to be involved. Um, 
along with you know a couple of new ones. But I mean, I'd been building it up since the companions, really, for for all of this. And and it, it felt like the end of the Homecoming trilogy. There's still a million stories to tell, and and that's you know for me, it, it didn't feel like it, that's what the ending felt like. You always leave it where you you don't resolve everything fully. Mm. You know with this type of an adventure with this with this type of a journey because writing these books has been my journey you don't resolve everything fully you resolve everything satisfactorily right but then you're always wondering well wait a minute yeah you know they never found that body or can where can we go next or what the heck is this going to lead to and that's i, I mean if you read most most books you read will end with something like that in mind. Most series, most books will end with something like that. Um, you know, what happened after Bilbo went back to the elves, right? And those those are the – that's – I don't want a nail of finality ever in anything. Right. Cause there's, it's just too – it's too much fun. And I love that idea that that the adventure adventure always continues. Like, there's just no way you could, uh, uh, you know, make everything good and happy again because that's just not the human experience. I mean, you just don't, you know, in our lives, it's not like everything was great, wrap it up, and now I'm dead. Like, you know, it's it's there's always regrets and things to change or threads to plot threads to to continue. Well, I mean, these characters have been friends for a lot of people, myself included, since 1988, right? Yeah. Um, and and the story continues. That's fascinating. Whether it continues, whether it continues in fanfic, whether it continues in imagination, whether it continues in books, whether it continues in games, um, the story continues. And there's a million stories that are going on here. There's a million promises and the, and a million threats that are still there. That's the Forgotten Realms, right? There's always something ready to stab you in the back <laughs> in the Forgotten Realms. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> yeah. The Forgotten Realms is rife so, with, with uh, things that could go wrong. Right now we have giants rampaging uh, above. It's just above. never – people just can't get a break, man. <laughs> you got dragons rising, demons. Okay, so tell me but, – but tell me how that's different from our world, right? Well. We, There's we, always something that comes up. Always something that comes up. World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, the Iran-Iraq War. There's yeah. always something. I mean, this is a conflict is, is, is seem unfortunately, the you know, we'll get to, wars. Yeah. We'll get to Gene Roddenberry's vision someday, I suppose, but yeah, but the, yet. well, if that's true, man, then the 21st century is going to got a really bad according to Gene Roddenberry's mythology, <laughs> right? Doesn't, yeah. don't we have to get to some really crappy times before the, the United Federation of planets is able to make first contact <laughs> with the Vulcans? You're wow. almost scared that he made a time machine, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> he knew. I actually read this this philosophical piece that postulated that every so often humankind almost builds itself up to major catastrophe. Yeah. Then the major catastrophe tells everybody, oh, we don't want to play like that. So everything goes along great and hopeful and hopeful and great and hopeful and great. And then it until it builds up again and people are forgotten and then we have another big one in the realms it's easier to do that because it's not just a bunch of people who kind of confuse themselves into conflict it's actual things that want to kill you like dragons and giants and yeah. you know there's 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 plenty of demons and devils and 
there's plenty of things out there that are gonna, that that can bring an adventure. I mean, a single goblin can bring an adventure to a town if he's clever about the way he's murdering people in the night. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's so that's. Do you think there's something to that too? Like that, I mean, that's why fantasy is so uh, popular in in our culture, uh, especially now. But like, just you know, in in general, is is that idea of there was something bigger, like the the whole you know the 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 classics, you know, that the Romans and the Greeks had this uh, you know somewhat enlightened uh, uh, thing, and then it fell. It, you know, during the Middle Ages, it was you know gone, and all that knowledge was lost. And then, in many yeah, ways, it, I mean, there could be some of that going on. It, the, to me, it's like one of the things that I've always found about fantasy that I think it, it attracts a lot of people is that it's it's basically war without guilt, mm. right? I mean, if you see a demon, you don't argue with the demon, you don't negotiate with the demon, you don't try to redeem redeem the demon, <coughs> right? Future book title the right there, redeeming. <laughs> Yeah, redeem it. Yeah. The other thing about the other thing about it is, uh, in fantasy, one thing I've always found comforting. I mean, we live in a world of seven billion people, economic systems that aren't even understood by economists, right? Wars you can't stop. Yeah. That seems silly. Uh, so it's very easy to not feel powerful in a world of seven billion people. Mm-hmm. And. One of the things I always found attractive about fantasy is one in most in most fantasies that I've read, one person can make a huge difference, right? The dragons terrorizing a town, and and Galen Bradwarden goes out there, and and when the wizard gets caught by the dragon, he casts the spell and breaks the gem, and the wizard explodes and kills the dragon, and Galen saves the town, right? Yeah. In in that great old dragon slayer movie, um, so you know Bilbo Baggins made a difference. Uh, Frodo Baggins made a big difference. Yeah. When the Eagles failed, Frodo was there, right? Um, so one person can make a difference in fantasy, and I think that's really very appealing to to people who live in a world of complexity and sheer numbers. And if they feel, yeah, right, it's 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 the idea of power when you feel powerless. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's the idea that you can make a difference, a real difference. And you can make a real difference, but you can only make it in little corners of the world for most people. And that's why I've, I've read some, some fantasy recently that feels a little bit more bleak. Uh, feels like there's not anything you can do to stop, you know, the horrors of wars against the orcs or whatever. Um, and well, fan- yeah, fan- fantasy is a complete genre. So you have all different kinds of things. I right. mean, it can be, it can be nihilistic. It can be, and 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 sometimes those are harder for me to read because uh, I'm I think I'm a much more optimistic person in general, uh, and that's why I like you know fantasy that kind of escape. Yeah, it no. turns a little bit that way, you know, because mm-hmm. it's like, hey, if I wanted to be depressed about the world, I could just be in the world. And, and, and yet, what's the <laughs> number one news. show? On, what's the number one show on television for the last few years? Yeah, The Real Housewives. It's, that's your television show. And that's also fairly bleak, if you think about it. Lots of wars, for sure. Yeah. It's more, it's more than fairly bleak. <laughs> I read this great article that said that suburban girls who are growing up in upper middle class and have nothing really to, nothing really bad going on in their lives are creating drama at restaurants and places. Oh, like Real Housewives. Because they think that's the way they're supposed to live life. Um, well, that's... But, but I mean, you look at Game of Thrones, and it's it's like I mean, don't get attached to anyone, right? Right. Um, but it's popular. 
but there's room in that for fantasy and there's room for hopeful fantasy and there's room for celebratory fantasy. You know, there's room for the Lord of the Rings. There's room for Game of Thrones. There's room for all of it. Yeah, yeah. It does have a wide breadth of moods and tones going on. Um, I wanted, you made a, a, a Facebook post uh, recently. Um, that, Uh-oh. <laughs> no, I just, I mean, I, I just liked that you were able to link to something that you had written in Hero uh, about some oh, of the, okay. the inner... Oh, yeah, that was good. The yeah. inner turmoils of what's going on with Drist uh, to something that is, you know, that's happening in our world. And I thought that was, that was really, you know, kind of beautiful in a way. Well, thank you. Um, I felt really good about that. And I got to tell you, one of the inspirations for that was Will Wheaton. Really? Well, Will Wheaton has been incredibly courageous by going out there and explaining his depression. Mm. I mean, I think he's been... I think he's been like a hero to so many people because he's been out there talking about it. And I have a, I, I have a dear friend who, who has some similar issues and I have other friends who have other issues. And it's so enlightening now that we're starting to understand that things like addiction and depression and PTSD – it's never measured as terms. We used to measure it in terms of strength or weakness, and that's wrong. That's yeah. not the way it is. And the only people who can think it's like that are the people who aren't going through it. Yep. I mean, I went through a depression when I lost my brother and my mother-in-law in a very short amount of time. My world got rocked. And then that stupid Vector Prime came out, and I was getting death threats from the Chewy people. Oh. And I, I, went through a, I went through about two years where every time I sat down to write, I had to force myself to turn the computer on. I, I, I didn't know I was depressed, but I was. Yeah. I Diane knew it and suffered. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but I, I, what, what I came to understand is, is that we have to look at these things in a better way. And so when I see someone like Will who's tweeting and writing blogs and you know, telling people, no, get help, get out of it, you can get out of it, you can, you can get past it, there is a brighter day, but you're going to need help possibly. Or, and being so honest about the things he went through, and I have a couple of friends who are in the same thing. It's like that, that, to me, that's one of the most critical things we have to go through today. That's one of the critical enlightenments we have to go through. You know, we have, whether it's racism, sexism, Understanding mental illness or depression or addiction, these are the kind of things that make us better people. Yeah. And so that's something that I, whenever, whenever I can in the books touch on a subject like that and just ask questions or get people to ask questions about it, I feel like the books go a little bit further in being real because everybody knows people who are, have issues. So it makes the books more real, more relatable, and more important. I agree. And I like that. I, I agree. like that. Yeah, because I think that's, you know, the, there is still probably some folks, some mainstream people who aren't fans of fantasy who will dismiss genre as just being genre. Uh, uh, and I, I, I think we can point to, you know, things like this in your book, uh, uh, that passage in particular, you know, that makes it more mean more. It's not just, you know, a, a fancy story about elves and dragons. It's actually something that it right. touches on stuff that's very, you know, important to the fabric of our lives. And uh, yeah. so, I, you know. I, and I think, that's, I think that's true in a lot of fantasy books. It's true. I think that's why they're working. I think that's why people are loving them so much. And I, and I have to tell you, you know, we have 200,000 
an estimated 200,000 soldiers mm -hmm. that came back from the recent wars who are suffering from PTSD. I heard the number 200,000. That blew my mind, but it makes sense. Yeah. We, we owe it to them to understand it and make sure they can get through it. We owe it to them. Not just because the fact that they actually did things for us beyond what most people will ever do for mm -hmm. that sacrifice, but we owe it to them just as people, to right. each other. That's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. And to and to, to give them all the help they can and need uh, uh, from their communities and from their families and from everyone and to make it feel like they're not alone. I think that there's the idea that you need to, I mean, some of what we already talked about, that there's one person that can save the world. Well, that one person needs a, a network of support in order for that deed to happen. I think that's actually also true in a lot of D&D fantasy in that it's not, you know, there may be one hero, but there's a whole party of, of people uh, uh, pushing to help that, that person and deal with all the negative side effects that may happen from 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 all of that. Uh, so it's interesting, and it's also interesting too. Like if I don't think anybody framed this back when uh, Tolkien was, you know, uh, uh, writing about what Frodo was going through after his ordeal in Mordor and all that. And you know, but yeah. there were some things about how you know uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, experiences during World War One informed a lot exactly. of what he was going. So like. You know, no one ever really said like, oh, Frodo was, you know, in that time shell-shocked or had PTSD. But, you know, now looking right. back, you're like, yeah, he totally was. That's why he yep. was that's going through. Analogy. And that's why he went back, you know, to the to the West afterwards because he's like, I can't do this anymore. I need to be with, with you know, and find his own elven support group of Gandalf and Galadriel to help him out. <laughs> and, and, it, and it really seems like there's little doubt that some of the biggest players in that era of human history – whether it's literary like like Tolkien mm -hmm. or political like Hitler, we're suffering from PTSD. Yeah. I think there's little doubt that you see it a lot with people on both sides of the major players of the 1930s and 40s. World War I scarred the world. It really did. Badly. And yeah, I mean, if if you if you read Tolkien's history, it, it, I don't know how anyone could have gone, gone could go through what those guys in the trenches went through in World War One and not come out of it like really hurting yeah. psychologically. Yeah. So kudos to you for uh, uh, following once more in J.R. Tolkien's footsteps and uh, and uh, <laughs> touching through you know some of these issues I think uh, these shoes are too big I'm losing myself <laughs> <laughs> um, so cool well I, I mean we've thoroughly depressed everyone and uh, I hope everyone will now want to go read uh, <laughs> read hero to kind of see some of the the bright spots the bright spots and and then uh, how uh, the redemption just is able to get through it all yeah exactly it's all chip the whole book is about Regis planting flowers around Menzo Barron's <laughs> that place needs a little brightening up it needs some flowers it does yeah it's got oh that place is gorgeous it is it is pretty but it's dark a little dark for it's you a little dark. dark for your taste Shelly? A little dark maybe like a little <laughs> skylight or something just something yeah <laughs> Evan, did you guys just catch that little song that played behind me? No. <laughs> my blind dog walked into my grandson's bouncer, oh. and when you make it move, it plays a little music. I remember oh. those. 
You're playing oh, dog. Poor Dexter. Oh, Dexter. <laughs> well, he'll have his redemption too one day. Dexter <laughs> will when he goes to doggy heaven. Dexter gets his redemption every time you get him mad because he'll bite you. <laughs> well, he has no, he gets away with it because not he's unlike, a blind dog. Uh, not unlike you as a dungeon master. <laughs> yes, yes I, I do those things. You Hi, Dexter. He's, he's standing right dog. next to me. Oh. Hi, Dexter. Uh, Oh, I forgot to He's tell you. He's a little you. Japanese chin. I have three little Japanese chins. I have a couple of chins myself. Then <laughs> <laughs> a Chinese phone. Like, oh, jeez. Oh, 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 All right. Did you want to say? Aside. Did you want to say one more thing? Yeah, I forgot to tell you that Nina said to say hello. Well, tell Nina I said hello. Right I will. There. I will. All right. Well, Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Bob. Uh, we, I, I'm desperately wait, awaiting when uh, when Hero comes out on October 25th, and I know uh, a lot of people are excited about it too. Yep. I'm really excited because two days later I'll be at Disney. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> what a way to celebrate! Thanks, Bob. Okay, great talking to you guys. Hopefully, I'll get up there and see you guys soon. I hope so. Yes. All right. Bye. Bye. I like Bob. I love Bob. I like what he does. I like his writings. Yeah. Yeah, he's always he always brings it to the next like literary level. I feel like, yeah, yeah, like he's yeah. always got something to pull out, and I'm yeah. always like, I'm, I feel like I'm back in English class when I'm talking. And to I him. like how excited he is about Hero. Yeah, and he's just like, I knew it. It's a good book. They're gonna love it. Mind blown. Yeah, or your money back. For just for that for one, one guy. guy. Yeah. <laughs> but if my mind's not blown, I'm gonna talk to him. And be like, I know you promised only to that one guy. Yeah, but but, but, but my mind like was blown. Credit. <laughs> Probably will be. Yeah. Probably will be. Yeah, we're gonna get like a, a explosion sound effect soundboard to put in this podcast from now on. But you're gonna, like, you need to go like trademark for demon. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say he could use that for that demon wars to be like ridiculous. here. Ridiculous. Yeah, demon. I love it. Yeah. Well, redeeming. Well, thank you for uh, listening to this wonderful conversation with Bob. Um, again, go check out Storm King's Thunder. It's out now. Volos Kind of Monsters is coming. At the end of this, uh, no, I'm sorry, November 4th is when it's going to be in friendly local game stores. There's an alternate cover. An alternate cover. cover. Exactly. Designed Ooh. by Hydro74. It looks really great. Check it out in game stores. Otherwise, you can buy the book uh, uh, widely, I believe, on November 15th. So right. check it out then. Oh, and again, yeah. give us some rates and reviews. Yeah. You can check me out on the Twitters. I get listen to all of your feedback on Dragon Talk there. Uh, Along with some other stuff, I'm at Greg Tito. Where are you, Shelly? At Shelly Moo. Shelly Moo, what else is happening? Uh, that's uh, Whatever product is coming out. Nothing major. No? Maybe just the first ever expansion for Betrayal at House on the Hill. Woohoo! <laughs> coming out. It's probably, actually, it's, it's probably out. Well, October 14th. Yeah. Yeah, so that's probably. Probably. My God. Probably. It's happening. Oh, yeah. I'm going to go play right now. Oh, I can't wait. All right. Thanks, you guys. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.